0: Hi, you found the BOMB podcast. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. This BOMB live event features A.M. Holmes and Francine Prose.
1: ...partnership, NYC and Company, Boar's Head, and our media partner, Time Out New York. I'm Betsy Sussler, and I'm the editor-in-chief of BOMB Magazine. For those of you who don't know, Bob Magazine is a cultural quarterly. We've been around for about 26 years, and we publish in-depth interviews between artists about the creative process. They're, They're literally living, breathing, historical documents. We have a booth at the fair, and I hope you all come by. I'm particularly pleased to be introducing Francine Prose and A.M. Holmes today because they are two of our most valued and deeply treasured contributing editors, um, which is why I am here. Uh, Both A.M. Holmes and Francine Prose have written novels, short stories, as well as nonfiction in the form of everything um, from memoirs to reviews of art. A.M. Holmes' most recent book, The Mistress's Daughter, deciphers her birth parents' initial contact and its resulting dramas the disturbed and intrusive mother, uh, the woman's withholding, corrosive lover, A.M.'s birth father, and it's a brave, provocative, and evocative tale about inheritance, character, and that evasive place we all call home. Even factual books are imagined. A.M. searched family trees and memorabilia um, to construct her narrative about her biological family. Francine Prose in her wonderful book on Caravaggio really only had um, court records to go on, and yet she created a fleshy, vital character, um, and and really a thriller. It's a a page turner you can't put it down. Francine's latest book, Reading Like a Writer, uh, is a superb compendium of writers and the worlds they construct. It refers to accurate assessments, maximum verisimilitude, Hemingway's credo, all you have to do is write one true sentence, and Baldwin's opening salvo, it was not to be believed. Reading like a writer is a seminal, pleasurable, and witty analysis of fiction and its craft. Apropos, then, that this conversation hinges upon the fine line between fiction and nonfiction. And I'm very, very pleased to present Am Holmes and Francine Prose. Yeah, i yeah. <laughs> sorry I haven't worked it out. i just going to start. I didn't realize that. Sorry, I do, I do have a few questions, and then we'll, we'll, I'll hand them over to, um, I'll, I'll hand the mics over to Francine and Am, but. Um, Both of you in your nonfiction have had to imagine into character actual people. Uh, Francine, besides Caravaggio, there's the lives of the muses. How does that differ from creating a fictional character?
0: Well, uh, it's a lot easier. I mean, it's not quite as much fun, but it's a lot easier because the life of the life is already there, so you just have to take the facts such as they are and try to imagine the psychology that went with, I mean, it, it, with Caravaggio actually it was quite a challenge because so little is known about Caravaggio, but but the women I wrote about in Lives of the Muses, in some ways it was quite straightforward. I mean, I didn't have to invent very much. I mean, I just had to tell the story. So it's, so in a way, in many ways it's less fun because there are no surprises. The life has already been lived. All I had to do was tell the story. I didn't suddenly discover that my character had done something I couldn't have suspected or wouldn't have known about, so On the other hand, um, it's easy. It's much easier for me. And, I mean, you know, and, and I should say, none of these none of these works are particularly autobiographical, which which adds another layer of difficulty. But if you're writing about somebody else's life, um, you know, I never woke up in the middle of the night in a state of horror because I thought I wasn't going to be able to finish the Caravaggio book or I wasn't going to be able to finish Life of the Muses, uh, whereas every novel that I've ever written, I wake up pretty much every night in a state of horror thinking I'm not going to be able to finish.
2: I think for me, interestingly, uh, writing about real people, especially real people who are still alive, was incredibly difficult. And I think I always felt that way, even when writing sort journalism, that wasn't about people that I knew, but some v- very much an awareness of here are the facts, even if it's just a few facts that I know, and here's the chronology, and trying to, whether it's to write an article or to write you know a piece of memoir, that constantly stays true to that information, and aware of how in fiction it would happily just bend and go off, and I had to, in, in nonfiction, I had to keep pulling it back and keeping it sort of Accurate in a way that I would say for me is much harder. Secretly makes me really pissed off. And the thing I love about writing fiction is that is the true departure into your imagination, and that you are not accountable to anybody but your character. Um, and it just I, I find it much, much harder to write nonfiction, but a very different process too that I have to say has a very strong set of appeals, and they're very different for me than fiction.
1: Um, I want to ask you: the the Mistress's Daughter, which is about you, your and adopted family, and 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 your birth parents. Um, I'm I'm wondering how you, as a narrator, um, how you redefined your sense of self, because you, as a narrator, were a character in the events.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, I thought of it very much as a story about people I never knew in a life I never lived. So I didn't think so much about what my role as narrator or character was. I think if I had I honestly never would be able to write it. Um, I'm used to being I'm used to being like a fifty year old guy. That's who I'm mostly narrating I, I would have the idea of me, if anyone actually knew what I was like narrating a book, I would scream hysterically and run out of the room. Not possible. Interesting.
1: Ferantine I have a question. Of all the people in the muse book which woman were you most drawn to? Which, what, what, what's the one that you would have made into a character in a novel?
0: Oh, Lee Miller, for sure. And why? Why, because she had the most, for one thing, she was the most, well, that's not quite true. She and Suzanne Farrell were the most gifted. Um, but she had the most amazing, dramatic, glamorous, courageous, tragic, you know, I mean, to start off as a fashion model and then, you know, come back from Paris. Actually, she started off just as a, as a beautiful young woman, went to Paris, came back, almost got hit by a car, got dragged to safety by a guy who turned out to be Condé Nast, who said, "Well, come up to the office." <laughs> Modelled for for you know the greatest fashion photographers. Decided it wasn't enough. Went to Paris, became Man Ray's lover, learned everything there was to learn. Left him after three years. Married an Egyptian, got bored, became a, a bow photographer and covered World War II. And, and the liberation of the concentration camps for Vogue magazine, which published um, those photos before. You know, when, at the time when the New York Times was still saying, oh, well, I don't know about those concentration camps, sounds a little weird. But Vogue said we'll publish them. Um, and then married, unfortunately, uh, a surrealist painter who said to her, who, who said in his memoir something like, well, photography and gourmet cooking have always been passions of beliefs. Um, so, and her life ended kind of miserably, and the only way we know about her photographs was that her son and daughter-in-law found cardboard boxes of her work in the attic and said, you know, mom, what's this? And she said, oh, I used to take pictures. And the, and, and, uh, wow. the rest is history. Although, you know, I mean, I have to say, after I finished I'm sort of here I have said all this, but but the Lee Miller estate was so unpleasant to work with that I found that I would never say a good word about Lee Miller again. But it wasn't. <laughs> <himself>. It it's
2: already gone.
1: Have you likened yourself to a spy or a detective um, in, in 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 the first? We grew up in Washington a lot of Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, as, and as Spy would, you withheld your name for some time from your birth mother. I'm wondering, and, and then she tracked you down, I'm wondering how she found you and if you could tell sure. our uh, audience a bit about that. I myself. mean,
2: they would hold my name
1: entirely. I, your, your surname. surname.
2: <laughs> you know, that whole piece of it was really the whole episode of being found by one's biological parents, as opposed to going in search of them. So literally somebody just appearing out of the blue. And what I said to her was, uh, I asked, actually asked for, them, for her to write me a letter telling me a little bit about herself. And I got two letters and I opened the post office box and I felt that it was going to be a process, that I wasn't ready to just sort of expose myself. And I already had somewhat of a, a sort of a public life and I didn't really want to just throw myself out there or throw myself to her. So I gave, she had my first name, my name was Amy, and then she found out, she was doing some research, and she thought I was a woman who wrote books about God, actually, um, it wasn't true. And then uh, she actually <laughs> called Politics and Prose, the independent bookstore in Washington, and said, who is a writer named Amy from Washington? I said, oh, you mean A.M. Holmes? Here's her phone number. <laughs> and Oscar Wilde was telling us the same story that his first wife like stalked him to uh, one time as well. She also stalked me there, like. So, it's a very active book store.
0: <laughs> 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 my, my first husband showed up at a reading in California, and I didn't recognize him. For so, so, I think a lot of that kind of semi-stalking thing. exactly. I think of the, of the thing, yes, exactly.
2: thing that's <laughs> interesting about that is when you do, when you're giving readings of things, people come, they want to come and look at you, and they have another agenda. And it's so weird, because sometimes, you take especially in this case, When I would read in or around Washington, I could tell there were people who had absolutely no interest in writing or fiction or anything. But they would come in and be like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just you wanna you wanna wanna pull Lenny Bruce thing and stop the whole thing like, excuse me, couldn't the guy in the back identify himself? You just want and then you realize your career would be ruined and what else. But unlikely. But But she
1: did show up at a reading. No, she she did. She
2: showed up at a reading. she asked if she could she said unannounced. She first said, what do I have to do? Come to Columbia University and wait in line? I said, please don't do that. <laughs> literally, the whole experience, I was 30, but it made me very small. I'm like, no, not necessary. <laughs> I turned from a short little or something. And she showed up at this radio scam in Washington. And my fourth grade teacher was there. My parents were there. My grandmother was there. I mean, everybody in my life was there. And I literally, the night before, I this all the book, I stuck the New York Times in my eye and, like, blinded myself. So I read like this. And I, only, I had a little like window. I, 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 the other eye also sort of kind of sympathetically close with the first one, so it really was very narrow. And after I gave the reading and I'm signing all the books, and I see this woman nervous in the back put a umbrella, and I knew immediately. And I just she came right up to me, "What did she do to your eye?" And I was like, "You know." And then she said, "You look just like your father." And this is the whole thing. This, you couldn't
1: you couldn't have a nightmare like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: that brings me, I know. <laughs> that brings me to my next question before we go back to Francine and. As, as you discovered, she lived not far from where you grew up in Washington D.C. You did write a novel about uh, a character, a heroine who was adopted, in, in rather than in all your worst nightmares, but in, in 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 a plot that you had devised. Would you have come I'm up? With anything as close I, as to what happened? happened?
2: The book you're about country of mothers. There's. The strange things about it are, that book was actually in galleys, about to come out as my biological mother found me. And the book was, I don't like the book. Other people like it, apparently it's okay. I, I never felt when I was writing it like I did a good job. I never did what I wanted to do with it. And it was the only time I ever wrote anything that had even an autobiographical thread. And the novel is the story of a woman who gives a child up for adoption marries, has another family, makes a sort of another life for herself, becomes a therapist, gets this girl patient who was adopted and drives the girl crazy. She thinks it's her daughter, and she just drives the girl right over the edge. And it was my attempt to sort of reconcile what I was thinking about adoption. And I really felt like, honestly, I never went in far enough. I just couldn't do it, and I, whatever. And that book was just about to come out when, out of the blue. It's like, I mean, it, it couldn't, it's like that power of conjuring something. And I wrote in Country of Mothers things about how the biological mother had never married, how this, how that, which all turned out to be totally true. Yeah, it's, it's like it things is. that you sort of know instinctively about yourself and your life and all that kind of thing. But you also, I mean, I've
0: noticed, and that, that's kind of one of the, the creepy and pleasant things about writing fiction, is that it turns out you know things that you couldn't possibly know. You know, you write a character, and two weeks later you meet the character. Oh, yeah. Or you make up something that you couldn't possibly know. And I mean, when I, after I wrote A Changed Man, you know, it's it's about a, a neo-Nazi who turns himself into a human rights foundation and becomes involved with a development director who has two kids and da 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 The first time I gave a reading from it, a, a poet I know came up to me and said, um, my sister works for the uh, Wiesenthal Foundation and a neo-Nazi came and turned himself in and she's the development director and she <laughs> has two kids and they became involved. And he basically, the novel hadn't come out yet. I just, I was reading from a manuscript And he basically told me the entire plot of my novel. I think there's
2: there's always a lot of truth in that, because I, with every book I've written, there have been things that when I wrote them were not true, and by the time the book came out, like the end of Music for Torching, which actually ends with a sort of a Columbine shooting, it came out three weeks before Columbine. Not that it had never happened before, but that was the first slide, so I think it's about, as a writer, I feel like if I'm doing my job, I'm reading the culture, and I'm reading the world we live in, and that if you you know if you're sort of good at what you do you're pulling those threads out and trying to process them before they're completely apparent or readable to everybody else so even though it takes us you know four years or whatever to write a book it still also takes a long time for it to build kind of critical mass so that we're really aware of what's going on and really aware of what you've written
1: how it applies
2: but i think it's even a little
0: than that. I, mean, I mean, because you know the fact that Kafka and Bruno Schulz were, were both writing about people turning into cockroaches at the same time. They didn't know each other, right? I mean, yeah, they were they, they were certainly in tune with what was about to happen, uh, but it wasn't yeah. exactly that that was going to
1: happen. We all, but I think I we
2: think do. I think we know more than we know that we know. You know,
0: yeah. It's to right. I mean. Um, And and I've also had, you know, and I I kind of discovered that very early. And then there were things that I wouldn't write (coughs) until, because I was scared to write, right? I mean, when I was writing *Household Saints, um, I was pregnant with my first son. And there's this horrible, it's beyond a miscarriage, I mean, it's just, you know, that happens in the novel. And I stopped, I stopped writing the novel until he was born and it seemed to be fine. And then I continued because I was so superstitious and positive that it was going to happen. I mean, you know, one of my friends, a writer, and I have this, you know, we talk all the time, we have this thing we say, which is, it could be a coincidence. You know, about just things like this, because they happen so often. I'm
2: thinking about writing a novel where this writer just sort of walks on the street and finds this bag and there's like tens of millions of dollars. Oh, good idea. The writer's writing by me and shares it with other people, Right? It's <laughs> <laughs> this bottomless uh, bag of money. they find it in Brooklyn. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: this. This next question is is pretty much what you all have been talking about, but I wouldn't mind taking it to another level. And that is, um, well, for instance, Francine, you picked quite a number of excerpts from fiction in your latest book um, in, in which you discuss the truth of a word, a sentence, an observation, and yet you're talking about fiction. So how do you use this word truth in relation to fiction?
0: That's such a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe a, a better word, which I didn't think of using, but I probably should have, was, was authentic. I mean, uh, because, because, you know, there's just some things you read, and you think they're just made up, they're just phony, they're just willed, somebody wanted to write a novel, so they wrote this novel, and I, for whatever reason, don't happen to believe a single word that I'm being told, mm-hmm. and I don't know what that is. I mean, I, it's a complicated process because it's partly about comparing it to your own experience, which is which isn't necessarily the best way, and it's partly about just you know the writer creates a certain world or a certain universe, and and then that world has an integrity of its own, and the minute you start violating that integrity, it's in trouble. Mm-hmm. But but it you know it's one of the, it's like art. I mean, you know it when you see it. I mean, you know what's inauthentic
2: when you read it, but it's hard to just. Yeah. I think that along the lines, I remember Grace Paley talking a lot about the truth according to the character. And that for me was always a good way of checking. I, you know, I really have always tended to write people, exceptional country writers, who are very different from myself. And I think a lot about what, what is this person's background? What is their experience? You know, I'm literally thinking about it. It's a whole it's like a crazy digression, but I always like, I want there to be a course in literally the economics of fiction why does a person live where they live? What is the financial and socioeconomic structure of fiction, and how has it changed over time? Because how a person earns their living, where their money comes from, the way that they are able to spend it, is part of how the story is told. So I think about everything from, like, you know, why is the guy in the end of Alice the guy that he is? Where did he come from? What got him there? And what does this mean to him? So it's really, for me, it's about not just inhabiting somebody other than myself in a way of, like, this is what I want the story to do, but really trying to figure out what would be accurate or organic to that character. And very often, it's something very different from my own thinking. And to me, that is the true pleasure of fiction, is when you go someplace with somebody that you, in many ways, could feel repulsed by or think, this is just not for me, but you know that it is accurate for that character or organic to that character's experience.
1: Well, back to your description of your biological father. Yes. <laughs> terms, talking about character,
0: yeah.
1: um, um, when you asked him to tell you about himself, one of the first things he exclaimed was that he was not circumcised. That's right. um, <laughs> what, did, <laughs> what did that tell you? What did that tell you about him as a character? Well, you know, I mean, again, and as I
2: actually did the research for the, for this mm-hmm. memoir. There were things that I discovered that filled in more about that, why that might be what a person would say. So in a certain sense, until I found that more, I held him all the, kind of at a higher level of accountability. I think the, the main things he was saying was that he really, he was so rejecting of his Jewishness, and he was Jewish, and he was raised in a family that when I interviewed all the relatives, not all of them, but different relatives, they didn't even know there'd ever been a Jew it was a big deal when the, the Catholic married the Christian, or the, you know, somebody who wasn't Catholic. They had no idea. So, And I found out that people had sort of thought of him and really rejected him as the Jew, as like the little Jew in their family. So that explained me part of why it was so important for him to make that statement in some ways. And I, it was about that, and I also really took it to mean that you know, part of what he was telling me was so much about how I was product of a sex life, not of a, a marriage, not of a long-term relationship, although it was a seven-year relationship, but it was very peculiar information.
1: Very. He also <laughs> treated you in a way as he treated his mistress.
2: Yeah, he did. No, I think the whole thing, I mean, I think he, he would look at me and he'd say things like, you don't know what it does to me to look at you. And he didn't mean like, oh, you're so successful, I'm so proud of you. God, I wish my other children were like you. It was like really like, oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the other weird thing like on the level of like it could be a coincidence, the narrator in End of Alice who never is named, so this jail pedophile murderer who's only once referred to as Chappie because he likes Chapstick, my biological great-grandfather, Chappie. Wow. Who the hell would yeah, you know, It's like, it could have, isn't that awesome? That like and my father would say things to me like, tell me about that book you're writing. Yeah. You know, and, and, he, and he said things to me like, where'd you get chappy from? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought, what are you, like, such a pervert that you're fixated on, like, chappy? You
1: yeah, know? And, and I felt like 10
2: years later that that's the thing.
1: Genealogy. So, mm. <laughs> Francine, um, it, it, in, in the latest book, in, in you have some wonderful chapters that start with word and go on to sentence and go on to um, paragraph. But I'm interested in the chapter on character, as long as we're talking on character. Um, And in that, you focus on examples from 19th century literature. I'm wondering why you chose von Kleist, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Gustav Blaubert. Yeah, 19th, 18th, and 18th, 19th and 18th.
0: Yeah, well, because that's one of the thrills of, of reading in literature is to find out that someone who lived Two hundred years ago, actually, shares something in common with with people you know. And you, you know, when you read Anna, Anna Karenina, and you go, "Oh my God, how did Tolstoy know all my friends?" Or, or you know, I mean, in the book, in reading like a writer, the, the story that that comes out of is I was teaching um, the Marquis of O by Heinrich von Kleist to a class of almost entirely Mormon kids, non literature major in the university at the University of Utah, and they were the most squeaky clean, lovely, never-been-out-of-Utah innocence, and here was Klaus, who was like this Demento German hypochondriac suicide, in that case, writing this um, novella about a woman who's kind of raped in her sleep, and she doesn't really know it, but she gets pregnant, blah, 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 and and the kids, by the time they got done reading it, were talking about the Marquis of O's family as if she were a relative of theirs. And, and it was so thrilling and astonishing that somehow poor, dead, suffering, miserable clients had bridged the gap of, of centuries-time geography to, to speak to the lives of, the, of these children. Could,
1: could, yeah, could you talk a little bit about why you broke the book down the way you did into those chapters? What I found really interesting is, yes, you start with the word and talking about the novel and fiction, but Chekhov is, is constantly brought up, and Chekhov was not only a fiction writer, short story writer, but a playwright. And And a journalist. And a journalist, and the last, um, one of the last chapters is, um, I'm forgetting the exact, is Learning from Chekhov. So I'm just wondering how you came to organize that, and what was in your mind?
0: Well, the Learning from Chekhov chapter was actually the first thing in the book that got written. I mean, I wrote that years and years ago, and and it was about, it's about a, it's about when was it? When did it actually happen? I'm trying to think. It's like 1986, I think. And I was living upstate New York and commuting to teach at, at Sarah Lawrence College, which was the worst job I have ever had in my entire life. And I never miss an opportunity to say so. And, um,
1: <laughs>
0: but but it was a real it was a real, as they say, learning experience for me because um, because I was you know I hadn't been teaching writing that long. I guess I, I've been about four or five years. And, and I would go into class and say the completely well-meaning, idiotic things that people say in their writing classes. You know, you have to show or not tell. You know, whatever, show and tell. And you can't have two characters with the same name, and that and, and you have to know the story it is. You know, the, the cliches of the workshop, because they're so easy. And then, um, and I was reading on the bus, going back and forth, I was reading my way through the Garnett translations of, of all the complete stories of Chekhov. And it was a talk about you know strange coincidences, but I would get on the bus and I would read a story that had in it exactly the thing that I had just gotten through telling a student he or she couldn't do. So you know it was week after week after week after week. So it was a real lesson for me as a teacher. I would never again and have really never again said those moronic things that I said in that class. Although you know. God knows my students have heard those things from enough other places that I, that I don't teach writing anymore, but I, I teach literature, but I'm constantly having to kind of correct these things that they hear. But the book really started there, actually. Oh, interesting.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about storytelling. Am, when, when, when the articles in The New Yorker yeah. first came out, um, excerpts from the mistress's daughter, I was oddly enough reading them at my family's house one of them. And I went, oh my God, I remember talking to A.M. about just this incident. And really, to me, it felt like I had heard you telling the story, and then I was reading the story. And I'm just wondering, for both of you, what what particular book has started out as, as something that you told as a story that became so pressing that you had to make it into a novel, or a, a Work and you know, I would
2: say honestly, no novel for me has begun with a story that I would tell somebody. Uh-huh. Um, not that, and, and I know a lot of people believe that you could sort of talk away a, a novel or a story, and I think, I don't fully believe that, but I believe it enough that there are people who when I'm working on something or I'm interested in writing something, I will talk to them definitely about the idea that I'm interested in. Like, with Music for Torchy, I remember talking to people about being very interested in writing about a marriage that was kind of falling apart, but the people couldn't get out of it, and things like that. But I never, the only story I ever told in that way was the story about my family. And I think I, and I only ever told it because it was so weird. So I, I couldn't have made it up.
0: <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. And it's <laughs> also
2: why I had to write it as nonfiction, because. Like why don't you write? You know, I already, I already sort of, sort of tried the novel version. But even after that hadn't happened. But when it really happened, a bunch of editors said you should write it as a novel. And I thought, why bother? Yeah. You know, it's not a novel. It's just it's worse than that. Fancy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never. That's never
0: happened to me either. Although um, it does happen quite often. I mean, I've noticed that there are a lot of little interpolated stories in my novels that are stories. I, you know, anecdotes that have come up in conversation, and that I. Give to my characters for one reason or another, but the whole thing, no, there's n- there's not even a story I don't think that I that that I've told that's wound up as a story. I mean, there stories they're, the stories I've written have, happen to be more closely based on things that have
2: happened to me than novels, but but none of them have really. uh-huh.
1: studied
2: I mean, I think I think be really were like a picture like the story Georgica from things you should not think. How do you tell a like, Yeah, there was this condom on a beach, and somebody like used it to inseminate themselves, and they. I just couldn't. They couldn't do it. It only works in a funny way. It only works as fiction. It only works embedded in a story, where it really is the link between the reader and the writer's imagination, which is mm-hmm. such a sort of a, honestly, a much more private place and a and a deeper place, and richer than what I would bring to you know. The a dinner, dinner table. table, yeah. But the dinner table, it's like you know, how was today? Fine. What you I wrote. So you know, it's just there's nothing, you know. I always think that's why writers are horrible at like, conversationalists. Like painters, they've been busy like, painting whatever. Writers, like it, it's just like no, I'm sorry, so painters
1: wrong. aren't that good in conversation <laughs> no, <I don't> <laughs> well, I it. And, and y'all, y'all are really doing pretty well. They read, too. Too. they
2: read, I know. That's why <laughs> they I they do. But, Yeah, but you, but you know,
0: I'm, the novel that I'm just finishing now is is based on a story that. Uh, based on a story that happened in my neighborhood near, near me in the country, but but it was a story that was so outrageously unlikely and improbable that no one would have believed it. I mean, if I had told the story, people will, their eyes would have just rolled back in their head. So so over the years, I mean, it happened 15 years ago, and it was something I'd always thought of. But in the various successive versions of the story that worked their way into the novel, its way to novel. I wound up losing all the improbable, unlikely parts. So only the sort of base, the the, the base that anyone would believe, made its way into the story. But the but the insane stuff, the insane stuff was what it attracted me to the story. What, what was it? What was it? Well, it had to do with a woman. It had to do with a woman whose daughter died and who insisted that her daughter's boyfriend marry the dead daughter over the graveside of the daughter of the dead daughter like who you You know
1: but then never i mean
0: this what scenes that will not appear in my next novel that's the one
1: (laughs) all right i before we open this up to questions from the audience i would like to ask each of you if you have a question for each other
2: well you know thinking about things i'm curious actually just to hear it seems to me like lately you've written even more nonfiction. I'm curious. I mean, you said a little bit about how nonfiction is easier for you, but but how that sort of process evolves for you, or how even the decision to go forward with a, a non a substantial piece of nonfiction. I don't know, how, What's up with you? <laughs> well, you know, some of the some of the,
0: some of the nonfiction, unlike fiction, again, like no one ever calls you up and says, "I want you to do." a novel about blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't happen. But, but two of the nonfiction books, in fact, the Caravaggio book and the Gluttony book, I mean, somebody called me up and said, um, well, Oxford University Press, in fact, called up and said, we're doing The Seven Deadly Sins, which sin do you want to do? <laughs> and for some reason, I went straight to Gluttony. And I, you know, it just seemed the most fun. And Caravaggio, likewise, for years, I've been talking to Jim Atlas about doing something for what was then The Eminent Lives, and, and finally, I kind of talked them into it. So so that's like, you know, here's something that interests me that I want it, that will be fun to think about. You know. So that's all those projects. But a novel never starts that way. So I want to ask you about writing about art, because we've both yeah, been you, doing yeah. it. Yeah, you so, so, have yeah. So, and neither of us have any, as far as I know, art history. I no, know, I, know I, studied, I,
2: studied I studied a little art history. I did? Yeah. Okay. I actually like art history. No, I did. Um, and it's funny because I never, I never knew anything about I said, real history. And I thought, well, art history is great because you actually learn about history and you learn about the world through art history, but yeah. I, I've been doing this weird thing with art writing, which is that I started doing these catalogs for artists or galleries or museums, but I used to write sort of, you know, actual art criticism or art in the way that you read in art forum and places like that. And I went to the Whitney program and I did their, you know, Sort of, oh, so you really know what you're talking well, about. Well, in theory, in theory, <laughs> but I have to, no, but I really, it also drove me crazy, because I felt like there had been an art form created, really in response to conceptualism, that was then a, so, a poetic form for writing about art, that used a kind of language that I thought was entirely fake, and drove me nuts, and I thought, I can't do this At all. Which is not is it, you don't do that at all either. I mean, no, I didn't even know. Right? No, because when
0: I got my first art writing assignment, I immediately you know I didn't know what to do. And, and someone I, said, Do you like no. pictures? You like pictures? <laughs> you married to a painter? So I went, Yeah, sure. And and I went out and the first book I got was Ross Cross's book about um, David Smith. Yeah. And I I remember sitting in the my husband was driving I was in the car I was crying. I couldn't understand a single word. I could not understand. I could not. You know, until that moment, I hadn't thought of myself as a particularly stupid person. But it turned out I just couldn't understand the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. And then, and I called up the editor who had asked me to do this, and I said, "Obviously, I can't do this." And he said, "Actually, I hired you because that's not what you do. And in fact, it's so much fun to write about art because." Because as you know, if, you, if you're writing a catalog essay or a museum essay, and you write something that's intelligible, oh my God, the, the, the gallerists or the directors, they're so grateful that
2: they can actually understand. <laughs> People are so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they, to have a running yeah. narrative, yeah. And that's one of the reasons Bomb started. And also i just like to point out that some of our best um, interviews with artists were done by A.M. Holmes and Francine Prose. Francine interviewed Captain Murphy and um, a classic, and the other classic is A.M.'s interview with Eric Bishop.
2: But You know what I think that's about Betsy, which is also sort of the same thing, as. I'm fascinated by hearing why people make the work they make, whether it's a filmmaker about, why did you become a filmmaker? What does it mean to you? Whether it's talking to Howard Hodgkin about his paintings, and what are the gestures, and what is the, what is the painter's vocabulary and how within their own work are they sort of reworking certain themes or different things and you know where does it come from for them so i i love talking to people about creative process also choreographers how do you how do you think And composers are you hearing it are you seeing it and i remember once i you know i was doing a lot of interviews because it was also a great way to as a thoroughly shy person talk to people whose work interests you, the only problem is that you have to write it up afterwards. I remember someone said, like, will you have lunch with Vanessa Gregory? And I thought, sure, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I have to make an article out of that? You know, but to hear why people do it, and I remember asking um, Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors makes watercolors to take notes. Helmut Newton wrote down notes. Other people take photographs. Everyone took notes in a different medium than what was their primary work. I thought that was so interesting because to do it as their, in their primary work would have meant they'd have to think about it differently than in some other way that they could just express themselves. Mm-hmm. So I just love that. Yeah, and also that's,
0: I mean, can I just say one of the reasons I love Bomb Magazine, because, um, because there's always something incredibly useful for me in reading interviews with people in completely different disciplines. I mean, for example, directors and actors, I still remember there was, a, there was a conversation, and I think it was, Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi. Oh yeah. Is this right? Yeah. And yeah. and I, somebody I think Tim Roth said that when he was he always remembered how he felt watching Jaws for the first time when he you know mm-hmm. that he was sort of curled up in fetal position with terror and then he drew on that when he had to play various characters and, and there you know and there was sort of actors talking about yes. sense of memory or the guy who did Amores Morales the director oh, yes. had ama- had an amazing speech about trying to put more humanity into his work, embedded in the interview. And, and it's unbelievably useful because you're not, it's not a way you would have thought about art, it's not a field you usually, you know about it, and, and it translates back, which is what's, what's so great about it.
1: Thanks, Francine, thanks, Danielle. I would like to now, if it's okay with you all, open up, uh, there's a mic here, and if anyone has any questions, please feel free to come on up. I think we've got about 10 minutes left, five minutes left, yes, yeah, so please. Come on. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll start asking you a question. We're after that. Can I speak from
0: here? Let's You
1: The mic's right here. It's not uh, far. I know, but everyone needs to hear you. Uh, this question is for Francine.
2: Um, I love reading books about writing. I just wrote a wonderful book called The Artful Edit. Have you read any other books uh, recently about writing? There's been a proliferation of books about the writing process lately. What's your favorite book about the process of writing? Or do you have one?
0: Well, I'm kind of an old-fashioned girl. I mean, I like E.M. Forster. I mean, those were things that I read. Henry James I read. Um, So I have, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I haven't read most of the recently published books about writing, and, and that was slightly intentional. I mean, I didn't. I just was going to do what I was going to do. And it, it would have bothered me to find out that someone had already done it. So, yeah.
2: I do recommend The Artful Edit, though, for anybody who likes to read about editing yourself before you hand over your work
1: to an editor. It's a fascinating book.
2: And we have a caller with a question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: ringing up here. We have no idea where it is or whose it is. I don't have that (laughs) But we're going to ignore it. Um, Two more. We have time for two or three Yes. Can you come up, please? Or is it just too horribly difficult?
2: Somebody who lost their cell phone who was on the panel earlier today. Uh, For Francine, I live in
1: Rome
0: where Caravaggio is and also the Caravaggio literature. I'll yeah. yeah. Is it on? Oh, yeah, it is on. on. You just need um, to
1: bring it up to your... Okay.
0: Um, I live in Rome, where Caravaggio is on the present, and um, there's an enormous amount of Caravaggio literature. Uh, if you go into the average Roman bookshop, you'll find tables and tables of books on Caravaggio. And I was wondering how you managed to wade through all of that to write a book your, I, I don't know what sort of books are available in, in English, but oh, how I managed to wade through all the Caravaggio literature Well, the fact is I mean there's some wonderful books on Caravaggio, thank God because I wasn't going to do what they were I mean you know I kept say, I kept saying anyone who actually wants to read a biography of Caravaggio should read Helen Langdon's biography, which is a great biography of Caravaggio and, and they'll find tons of stuff that are not is not in mine and, and so forth. but um but But I realized that the one thing, I realized two things. One is, and this occurred to me writing Lives of the Muses as well, up until about 20 years ago, you could just say anything you wanted and put it in a biography or work of nonfiction, and there were no footnotes and nobody, their fact checking was like joke. So, you know, so I I would find these five or six variant versions of what had happened. And and fortunately, my friend, Roland was at the academy at that point and I said, what do I do? And she said, just use Jan Langdon as the, as the authority. Beyond that, what I noticed about the other Caravaggio books was that um, I thought the one thing that I can do that they haven't done is that I can talk about the paintings in a different way. I mean, in fact, very few of them really, so, you know, one or two, but very few of them really sit in front of the paintings and say, this is what I see or, or write about it particularly well. So that, so more than anything, that's what my book is. I mean, the parts that I'm happiest with in the book are, are simply the descriptions of the paintings. Well, one very often wants to ask them to shut up because <laughs> they produced far too much that's really unintelligible. But um, there really is a Caravaggio industry, and um, it's almost like cultural wallpaper at this point. And I admire you for taking him on for this. <laughs>
1: Thanks, thanks. Thank you. You know, I'm sorry to say, but I have a question I really wanted to ask Am that I haven't got to yet, and since I have the stage, I'm just going to do <laughs> it. <laughs> exactly. Um, th- th- there's a section in The Mistress's Daughter where you indict. I know I can't get off, it, I'm yeah. sorry, but you know, um, where you indict your biological father, much as a lawyer would in court, um, and you're indicting him for denying you and for being a jerk, which he's been. Um, could you have taken him to court to prove otherwise? And what did your lawyer say about using his real name? Because in fact, this book is an indictment sure. of him.
2: Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And the, uh, the chapter Betsy's talking about is a chapter called Like an Episode of LA Law, which is in a way the most unusual chapter in the book. And it came about because as part of the whole process of writing about my biological family, I had taken a DNA test with my biological father at his request to prove that he was my father. And his, he never showed me the results of the test. He said, it's 99.9% likely I'm your father. What are my responsibilities? I said, Don't be a jerk. Um, so when I was doing the research for this book, I asked for a copy of the test and was told no. And. That, uh, that his lawyer now had the test or whatever, and then my lawyer called his lawyer, and his lawyer said he'd lost it, which is the likelihood of a lawyer losing you know, that. It's like, and why would that still be your lawyer? Uh, was, well, fine, will you sign an affidavit of paternity? No. So then my lawyers, which were people based in Washington, included a guy named Lanny Davis, who'd been uh, special counsel to Clinton during the Monica thing. So it was a very particular group of lawyers who knew my father, and I knew they would know who he was, and Lanny said, oh, no problem, I'll get this from him, you know, in a minute. And Lanny called me back and said, is there some reason why your father wouldn't want to do this? I said, I don't know, it's all so strange. So they really wanted me to sue him. they said, absolutely, you should now sue him to prove paternity. And interestingly, adoption groups were sort of horrified by that because there's this kind of, like, going along with things, that it's, it's against the tide of, of where adoption theory or, you know, adoption is at the moment that you would sue your biological parent to prove that they were your parent. And I also thought, I don't really want to sue this guy. It's just the whole thing is ugly, but the interesting thing is the first thing that would happen if I sued him would be a a period of discovery. and would be a chance for lawyers to ask questions. Among the questions they would ask were all those things that were in that chapter. And interestingly, the chapter's only questions, there's no answers. So in response to, is it a risk legally? No, because there were answers that I already knew and they were answers that I pretty much had facts to back up, but there's no, there's nothing, there's no words put in his mouth, which is what's so interesting. And, and kind of in a funny way, awful about it if you're that guy. Because the fact is if I had sued him, it would have been all the more revealing of what sort of an awful person he was. Yeah. Um, so it's a strange chapter, but it really, and interestingly, I feel like at that point in the book, the reader knows enough about my family to essentially answer the questions for themselves. I don't think as a reader you notice, oh, there are no answers
1: here, because you're, you're answering them, you're reading them. you yeah. know what the answers are. Yeah. So it is an indictment of him. No. Um, do we have time for one more question? No, I'm sorry. What, thank you. Oh, sorry. Hi, this is for A.M. as well, um, sort of related to
2: the last question, which is, I know uh, novelists often say that people assume that every novel they write is autobiographical or semi-autobiographical and readers think they know you after um, reading The Mistress's Daughter. Do people feel that they know you and do they feel that
1: you should have done things in a different way, perhaps?
2: Definitely people, it's funny, because it every article that came, I was like, the notoriously private writer Holmes, which I don't even know where that came from, has now, you know, revealed her true self. And I think, you know, I revealed a piece of my life that is, in a funny way, so not the whole of my life, but it is a very specific, experience and yet I probably would never do something like that again because I have to say going on book tour (laughs) going on book tour for the memoir and I literally had to go first to Europe then to the US then back to like Germany okay it's like Heidelberg and let's talk to you about your memoir and I really felt that it was like a test it was like the James Fry post-James Fry test where in every country in every city they asked you the same question again and again thinking that at some point you'll crack. (laughs) <laughs> and the truth will come out. Even in German, I'll ask you. You know, you will tell us. You know. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, the confusing side or downside is I think people who've read my fiction over the years can read the memoir and, in some ways, think they know me in, w- in ways that may not even be accurate. The thing that's sort of positive thing about it, which is a is a whole other world, is that the memoir seemed to actually mean a lot to people who were adopted, who were given children up, who had adopted children. And so it was, a, it was really a very different audience that would sort of write to me and talk to me. And largely, what they're doing is not telling me how well they know me, but telling me what their stories are. And people had sort of warned me against that and said, that'll be horrible. And actually, I'd say that has been the more pleasant part of the whole thing. Because I feel like it, it, the, the only reason to finish the book, because it was sort of excruciating to write, was the hope that it would have meaning for other people. Because by the time I was done with it, I was done with it. I mean, not that it doesn't plague me in some ways, it's not part of my life, but I had reconciled myself to who I was and what my experience had been. Um, but you know, I, I feel like in, in the sort of weird world of adoption and stuff, there's always been a thing of that One person's experience is right and another person's is wrong. You know, It's a very complicated thing for everybody. For a woman who gives a child up, for a family that adopts a child, and for the, ch- the child who you know, does become an adult at some point, even though technically, legally, you don't. Um, so I wanted to just sort of put it out there to, to sort of acknowledge that it is, it's a mess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wanna thank A.M. Holmes, Francine Prose. you guys are the best. There are going to be downstairs, I believe, uh, book signings. There are books um, by Francine and by A.M. Holmes, and we hope you come on down there and get a few because you will not ever regret it. Uh, Bomb Magazine, booth number 28. Thank you all for coming. Bye bye.
0: You just heard a Bomb Live event featuring A.M. Holmes and Francine Prose. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews and more, check out bombsite.com.